Hey y'all, welcome to another episode of Chats from the Blog Cabin, the show where I invite people into the blog cabin to chat about life. I'm Melissa, your host. Today I'm chatting with Kevin Hoffman, author of Growing Up Black and White. It's a really great conversation. He talks about being the product of an affair between a white woman and a black man in the 1960s. Y'all, that is the like the highest racial tension that we had in our country, excluding what's going on now. We have a really great conversation, and I hope you learn a lot from him because I learned a lot, and I can't wait to have him back on the show. So you know what I need you to do right now? That's right. Start listening. Hi, guys. Welcome back to another edition of Chats from the Blog Cabin. I'm joined tonight by author and speaker, Kevin Hoffman. I wanted to put an extra F in your name because when I grew up, people around where I grew up in the South, they always put an extra F in there. And I realized when I, and I want to apologize real quick, that when I started doing the publicity for it, I put an extra F and I'm like, oh, and then I realized my, my mistake and I corrected it. So welcome, Kevin. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Thank you. Thank you. And no worries about the last name that happens all the time. Uh, so I am a uh, biracial child uh, born from an affair between a black woman or black man and white woman back in the late 60s in Detroit. And that's kind of where the story starts and has a lot of twists and turns after that. So let's talk about the like the very beginning of your book. You talk about your parents waking up. You were adopted by a white family. You talked about your parents waking up to a burning cross in their front yard. Let's talk about that. Yeah. So like I said, I was the result of an affair between a white woman and black man. Uh, and so my white mother's white husband insisted that uh, she put me up for adoption right away. So I was immediately put into foster care, spent three months there, and then adopted by a white minister, his wife, and I have two brothers and a sister in the adoptive family. Um, at that time, when I was three months old, they lived in a suburb of Detroit, and this was in the late, well, mid-1967, uh, and they lived in a suburb of Detroit, Dearborn, which at that time was considered uh, what's, con what's called a closed community, where, although it wasn't legal, but technically what they did is there were communities that just did not want people of color to be in them. Mm -hmm. And Dearborn was one of those communities back in 1967 and, and actually a couple, <laughs> a couple years, you know, up into the 70s as well. Um, and so, uh, yeah, that was the community's way of responding to the fact that this child of color had somehow infiltrated their community. Um, and so when I was about a year old or 11 months old, we woke up to a cross burning on our front yard in Dearborn, Michigan. Wow. I just, I can't even imagine, you know, your parents, what, what was going through their mind because all they, one of the things that I actually took notes on when you said your Christian parents, when someone was in need, you help them. When someone needs a helping hand, you offer yours. That's just the Christian faith. So what was going through their mind at the time? I think it was fear for one. So this was, you got to give context to these stories. So mm -hmm. this was, I was born two weeks after the 1967 riots in Detroit. And so those 
those riots are historical, just like the ones now. And it's actually has to do with a deal with a lot of the same thing. Um, there was a portion of the community in Detroit, the uh, community of color, quite honestly, who had just had enough of the unfair treatment by uh, the predominantly white police force uh, in Detroit. And so it was there, they took a stand to create change. And so that's when all this happened. Um, and like I said, that was late, well, 1967. Um, so yeah, you have to take into account what all was going on then. And so, and then a year later in 68 is when Bobby Kennedy was assassinated and Martin Luther King was killed. So I think looking back and they, yeah, my mom, especially my mom, who would, who was the mother of, at that time, three children all under the age of five. I think waking up to a cross burning on our yard, she was one, just terrified that, you know, the community was responding in a horrible way that they didn't want this child there. It was obvious why this cross was burned in our yard. And so, yeah, I think my mother was terrified and then just horribly disappointed that it would come to this, that the community would speak out against this small baby i wasn't even a year old at that time i i mean and looking back and reading your story and then i talked to saw how where even the lutheran church spoke out against your father trying to get him to you know tell him he was he was a what not believe in christ at all blasphemous yeah right get him yeah. away from it yeah 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 and you and again man so history is just repeating itself and so yeah, he at that time, you know, communism was huge and his big fear. And so, yeah, he was actually labeled as a communist. And a lot of that had to do with, yeah, the fact that they wanted me gone. So to get me gone, you fire my father. So, yeah, it was this very contentious relationship between my father and his boss, the head pastor at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Dearborn, Michigan. Now, what I love about um, your whole story is that your parents weren't even thinking that you were even biracial. They just wanted a child to love. They just wanted another child. And I love that, the acceptance right there. But you weren't accepted by everybody in the whole family, were you? No, my mom's mother, so my grandmother, really had a hard time with the fact that she had this child of color in her family. Um, and that, that became... And because of that, there was this very just uncomfortable relationship between my mother and her mother. And to the point where, and I didn't even know this growing up, but my mother, my favorite quote from Maya Angelou is, when people show you who they are, believe them. My mother knew who her mother was. And she knew that she had issues around race. And so... I didn't see my grandmother and grandfather a lot. I saw them probably once a year. And I think that was my mom's way of protecting me against her mother. And that sounds horrible to say. And I don't think my grandmother would have done anything. And she never did anything or said anything. But my mother just didn't want me to be exposed to any of that. And so she was just, quite honestly, she was playing the odds. The less time my mother's around this child, the less chance she can at hurting him, I think is probably the thought. Yeah. In your book, you actually say that you were talking to your grandmother and you asked her how she felt when, and she said heartbroken. Yeah, that's, yes. Yeah, so that that, uh. 
<laughs> yeah, so that's one of the interesting stories about writing the book is, so you have to go around and ask everybody because I wasn't, you know, I was alive, but not conscious enough to know what was going on. And so I would ask, you know, my mom, I interviewed my mom and dad and found out a lot of these stories that I never knew. The cross burning incident, I didn't know till I was, I think, in my late 30s, early 40s. Uh, and so it was just interesting to sit down with people and say, so what happened? And I did that with my grandmother. And initially, my I asked my grandmother, so what was it like to adopt this child of color? That was one of the first questions I asked her when I sat down with her. And uh, she gave me this answer, this kind of, it was a standard answer. I could tell there wasn't much there. And so I left that alone. And I had already talked to my mom. So I, I knew the real story, but I wanted to hear it from my grandmother. And so uh, we continued the conversation. And then I remembered back to the cross burning incident. And I asked my grandmother, so tell me what you remember about that. And then it was really interesting that that's when she kind of left our conversation and I could tell she was really thinking about that time and what was going on. And, uh, and honestly it was, she was the grandmother of, you know, me and my brothers and sister. And I think she was just very concerned about her daughter and her daughter's family. Um, and again, like I said, the threat that someone could get killed over this was very real. real. And uh, so by that time in 1968, my grandparents had moved to Florida and were living in Florida, but heard about the cross incident and then came back to see if they could help, I guess. Um, and so I'm having this conversation with a grandmother. I'm going through all this again. And she's kind of transported back to that time. And then I, and so I asked her again in the interview, I said, so what was that like? You know, your daughter adopted this child of color and brought him into the family. That was so unusual. And my grandma, and I said, how did that make you feel? And my grandmother's response was, well, I was heartbroken. Mm -hmm. And as a writer and doing a story, mm -hmm. half of me was like, yes, that's, that's, the, that's the answer you want. But then me as the grandson of hearing your own grandmother tell you she was heartbroken because you were around, then you're like, wow, yeah, that's not the scoop I wanted. Um, and so, yeah, she really struggled with it. Uh, and, and she just didn't know what to do with that information. She saw herself as a socialite that ran in a circle of upper upper class white people, quite honestly. And so it was embarrassing for her to have to admit to that circle that she had a child of color in her family. Well, and what is your relationship like as you were growing up? Did it change after she got to know you or was it still based on color? I think the only way my grandmother could handle this mentally and psychologically was to almost convince her that I wasn't really black. Okay. And so I think that's what she did. And I, and I tell myself now, man, I would have watched my grandmother around my black friends. I wish I would have just sat off to the mm -hmm. side and watched that, that interaction. Um, and so this wasn't too long ago. I was talking to a friend of mine from high school that I'm still in touch with. And I said, Derek, tell me, what do you remember about my grandparents? Because like I said, they would come in once a year, mm -hmm. a couple of weeks. And my uh, friend black guy from high school said, man, loved your grandfather. thought he was a cool old dude, but your grandmother, man, she just, she didn't like black people. 
And I, and I thought that. And as a person of color, you get to know those kind of, those tells mm -hmm. um, when people are around you and they're uncomfortable. And so, yeah, my, so I trust what my friend said, because I think, again, if I was sitting off to the side and watching my grandmother with what I know now, I would probably, I would more than likely agree with him. Yeah, she was just uncomfortable around people of color. So what are some of the tales then? Because you just said some of the tales that you could tell if you're a person of color, um, that you could tell people are uncomfortable around you. It's just an uncomfortableness. Some will, and I got this in college, which was interesting. So so I grew up in this white house, but the the beautiful thing which my parents did was we lived in that white neighborhood from I can, you know, three months old to three years old. We lived in that that Dearborn in that community two years after the cross burning. We didn't even move till two years after that. And that was during a time when the church was trying to fire my father because they brought me into the into the church. Mm -hmm. And my parents put up with that for two years. And all the time, all the while, um, my mother had shared that the women in the church would refer to me as the snotty nosed black kid in the nursery. Mm -hmm. Or my mom said they members were women, mothers in the church were constantly coming up to my mother and asking her well, who's he going to grow up and marry or who's he going to grow up and date? And I'm like a year or two old. Mm -hmm. It became this obsession, quite honestly, with people around our family as to who is this black kid going to grow up and marry or date? Um, and so even after going through all that, I think my parents finally decided this city is going to change us far before we change it. It's time for us to leave. And so my father took a church in Detroit, where the parsonage or the home that was owned by the uh, the pastor's family was in a black neighborhood. So from age three to 18, I lived in Detroit. The majority of my friends were black. The schools that I went to were 95, 98% black. And I was just constantly surrounded by kids that looked like me. And that was just life changing to be able to see, to have role models mm -hmm. who I could become. And to the point where I just, that first neighborhood that we went to, I was so fortunate that there was a kid across the street. He's not named this in the book. It, Derek Herbert is his real name. Mm -hmm. um, and as soon as I got into that neighborhood, he was probably five or six years older than me. And quite honestly, he put his arm around me and he told all the other kids, leave him alone, don't touch him. And no one did. They didn't mess with me because, I mean, he was the Don of the neighborhood, quite honestly. Oh. Um, and so I was just so fortunate that I had kids like that kind of looking out for me, uh, because although we moved into a black community and we were part of a, in, in a black neighborhood, my parents didn't know black culture. And so it was just mm -hmm. wonderful that I could go out and I learned it through my friends who grew, grew up in, it. um, I didn't always get it right. I have cultural gaps because I grew up in a family with white people. So I don't have all that information that you know your typical you know black person growing up in a black household has but it just allowed me to see what black was what it could be versus what i was seeing on tv which was important i mean there weren't a lot of positive role models of black people in the 70s on tv yeah one of the things i really loved about the book it says being exposed to good and bad 
bad black people, I understand good or bad didn't actually wasn't genetically bound to a race one way or the other. And I love how you said that, how you were able to just look at it, because obviously if you were had grown up in white America, you would have had that stereotype that even you looking at yourself in the mirror could be this yeah. bad person, you know? So I actually applaud your parents for doing that. Cause you know, it had to be kind of scary for them to move into a all black neighborhood and they were the white people on the block. Yeah. And they were, yes. And so anytime I say this all the time that anytime you're a minority, it's just human nature that the majority picks on the minority. And so my brothers would get that a lot, especially my one brother would often get picked on. And I think it had a lot to do with, it It, it did. I'm convinced that he was the different one. So they picked on uh, In that first neighborhood, it's, it seemed like we got robbed every, every afternoon. I, it, oh my God, every time I woke up, it felt like someone came in and stole the TV. I mean, and so I would, like I said, so I lived in that neighborhood for five years and then my dad gets a promotion and we moved two miles away, still in Detroit, but now into an all white neighborhood in Detroit. And looking back on that, I was so fortunate that we did it in that order for one, that we were in the black neighborhood before, because I learned so much about surviving in a majority environment from my friends who had lived as minorities. And so Derek and those kids, kind of gave me what I call this armor that I would put that I put on every day to go out and deal with things as a person of color in this country. And so I would I remember going into this all white neighborhood and being petrified that I was the only black kid there. But then I remember just 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 handled it like Derek would. Mm -hmm. And Derek was the kid that just man, I never saw him crack. And I and he just taught me that sometimes man even if they, you know, broken your heart, don't let them see you crack. Do it, you know, off to the side. Mm. And that was a very important survival skill for me to have in that neighborhood where, and I saw it with, I saw the opposite with my brother in the black neighborhood. So when my brother, when they would chase my brother home and pick on him, he would cry and scream and give them everything they wanted. And all that did is make them seize on him more. Mm. So I was so fortunate that I had learned that lesson from my friends so that when I went into the white neighborhood, I kind of protected myself from uh, some, some at, at the very least uncomfortable situations, but just it protected myself from the pain of being the different one and being treated like that. Let's talk about the incident with the candy store with the Italian woman screaming at you. I mean, oh my gosh, I can't even imagine that a little kid and accusing you of stealing when you had just paid her. Yeah. Yeah, so early on when we moved into that white neighborhood, it was one of the first times I got to be, I was out with this group, and it was a large group of boys in the neighborhood, all white. I'm the only black kid in the group. And they were going up to the corner store three blocks away to get some candy, and I was all excited. Um, I wasn't allowed to do that in our last neighborhood, quite honestly, because it wasn't safe to walk. Uh, that distance to the corner store. And so I was all excited about going. I asked my mom for a quarter. She gave it to me. I already knew exactly what I was going to get when I walked into the store. And so I was one of the first ones in the store. I walked right up to the counter, grabbed this bag of gold, gum, gold rush, which was gum in the shape of gold nuggets. Mm. And so I was so excited about getting that. 
put my quarter on the counter, took my candy, and the first mistake I made was I put it in my pocket. And I stood off to the side, waiting for my white friends to finish their selections so we could go. And about three or five minutes later, after I made this purchase, this the woman who owned the store, uh, she was this old Italian woman that spoke broken English. And she just started yelling at me and pointing at me. And I had no idea what she was saying. And through her broken English, I finally heard her say, you stole. And she was pointing at my pocket in the bump in my pocket where the gum was. And I'm panicked and I'm so confused because I'm thinking, we just had a transaction not less than three minutes ago. How come you're not remembering that? Mm -hmm. um, and I wasn't sure, I was totally embarrassed that she was kind of outing me at this as a thief. And she was planting that in the seeds of these new, in the minds of mm -hmm. these new friends. And I didn't know how they were gonna respond to that. And quite honestly thought, they don't know me well enough to say I'm not a thief. So I'm pro they're probably gonna think I'm a thief from this point out. Um, and then I was uh, just panicked as to what was this going to, how was this going to get resolved? Were the police going to be called? What was going to happen? Unfortunately, while all this is going on and I'm only seven or eight years old, I can't negotiate this conversation with this adult. Unfortunately, uh, a white man had walked into the store at the time, saw what was going on, walked up to the front, kind of pulled me in close to him and said, son, did you pay for the candy? And I said, yes. And he said, okay. And he reached into his pocket and put a quarter on the counter. Um, and that resolved the situation. But it was just, it was a horrible introduction to those kids in the neighborhood. And yeah, I remember walking those three blo blocks home and not much was said. It was just so uncomfortable. Never told my parents about that. Um, just felt so ashamed and didn't even do anything. Wow. And for the uh, white man to actually step up, step up and say they had probably took a lot of guts for him to actually do that as well. Cause you were talking about this is what in the seventies at this point, right? Exactly. And a lot of racial turmoil going on then. Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 Especially in Detroit. Detroit was just has this long history of just racial tension. Um, so yeah, it was just really cool that, you know, when you talk about allies, I mean, yeah, he was an ally. He saw that something wasn't right. And he had the authority in that situation, quite honestly, to correct it. And he did. And I think he knew, too, she's not going to push me like she's pushing him. Mm -hmm. so let me get this resolved, which was a really cool thing. Do you think if you had been older, she would have said you stolen? Or do you think she would have accused you even more and maybe called the cops at that point? I don't know. Um, the beautiful thing about doing the work that I do is I spend a lot of time, like, researching uh, mm -hmm. racial identity and, and just the impact on race. And one of the interesting studies that I've come across is that people interpret people of color as much older than they actually are. Mm -hmm. So there's been studies done and in the average for children and adolescents is people assume people of color are about three or four years older than they actually are. Um, and that doesn't seem like too much, but when you consider the reaction you would respect from a, expect from a 12-year-old versus a 16-year-old, which is different. So how you respond to that child according to their age can be different as well. Um, so it does make a huge difference. And so I don't know if she saw me as older. Um, 
And I, yeah, I don't know where that was going to go. And thankfully, I, I didn't find out. <laughs> yeah, thankfully. I like yeah. how you were saying just a minute ago about kids that are of, of color or uh, people of color, because my husband's from Mexico. He's a native of Mexico. I think I told you that when I was asking you to be on the podcast or on the live. Um, and, you know, with my daughters, they always got they weren't Mexican enough for their Mexican friends and they weren't white enough for their white friends. They were always caught in the middle. Did you ever feel like that? I did a lot of work growing up to avoid that. I understood at an early age, and this has a lot to do with Detroit at the time, but Detroit, and it still is that way in some parts where there are white neighborhoods and black neighborhoods but there was very few, and still to this day are very few, uh, diverse neighborhoods in Detroit. Mm -hmm. And so I learned early on from my own social survival, I was gonna have to find the group I belonged to in a sense, and that they, because I knew both, I just knew early on I wouldn't pass for white. Mm -hmm. And so, and I knew race was such a big deal. And so I did a lot of work in studying I remember just watching my black friends and how they would respond to certain things. And really I was just looking for their social cues and their cultural cues that I wasn't learning at home. Um, and so that really helped. But again, like I said earlier, there were still all these gaps culturally that I had, but that really helped me is just to watch these kids. So I became very purposeful in, okay, how can I fit in this community? And, and the thing on top of that, too, was I was really drawn to that community. It, mm. It's really hard to describe, but it was just a sense of home that I just felt. And I think what it was, was I knew there were differences in how people saw the people of color. But with my friends, I didn't have to like put on that armor that I was talking about earlier. I could just take that heavy armor off and just be me. And so I did a lot of things very purposeful as a child to be a part of that group. And I always wondered, man, I'm sure, again, there were mistakes I made. And uh, not to, uh, it was probably 10, 15 years ago, I went back to a reunion with some of my friends from grade school. And we're all asking each other what we do. I told them I wrote this book. They asked me what it's about. I tell them. And one of the girls that I grew up with in grade school, she says, man, I didn't know you were adopted. And I thought, wow, it worked. I just wanted to be a kid in that environment. I didn't want to be the adopted kid in a white house. I just wanted to be a kid. And so for, and this was a very small close knit school. So for one of my classmates to not even remember that I was this black kid that lived with a white family, man, I remember going, wow, success, you did it. Like you just, you were able to blend in in some situations. Now, what led you to write your book? Because honestly, I, I'm halfway through it. I told you that I'm up to the part where Stevie Wonder is coming in with you and your mom listening to Stevie Wonder. That's the part I'm on right now. But what led you to write this book? I mean, because the book is like I said, I told you earlier, it's awesome. It's, I think everybody needs to read this book. Thank you. And that was why I wrote it. and didn't even know that until probably I was into writing. Um, initially, I thought, wow, this is just this crazy family. Like, this is just so unusual. This hasn't been done a whole lot. And I think it would just be interesting to hear, from my point of view, how what that was like. 
Um, and so, and I had heard, had I, I had heard very small pieces of the cross burning incident and thought, wow, now that's really interesting. And then I remember hearing things like my dad once met Coretta Scott King, Martin Luther King's wife. And I was like, wow, now that's really interesting. Um, and then got to hear in, it was in the book that my parents were these, they, they were in the community protesting racial inequality before I was born. Um, and so it's just great stories like that. I thought, wow, this is a really cool book. I think people would be interested in this. But part of, part of the call to write the book was, how do I tell, write a book about race in a way that people will still read it? Mm -hmm. And so I went into it thinking, just tell them stories. Just tell them these crazy stories about you growing up and the, the misadventures you have with your best friend, Mike, across the street. And then at the end of those stories, just tell how you interpreted that as a child of color in this country. Mm -hmm. And so that became one of the biggest pushes for writing the book was I wanted everyone, not just people of color, but especially white people to just hear about my experience. And so that I could, and I, the goal was if I make myself likable and I tell mm -hmm. these stories, then maybe people can go, wow, yeah, maybe they're not making these stories up or maybe they're not too sensitive about race, that maybe we do have an issue and maybe we should do something about it. And so yeah, that became the push behind the book. Yeah, because a lot of people, they don't want to talk about it. They want to, it's it's an uncomfortable situation and nobody wants to talk about it. And we need to talk about it so yeah. we can learn from each other. Exactly. And, and I don't mean like have a shouting match at each other. I mean, yeah. sit down and have intelligent conversations with each other and listen to both sides of the story. Yeah, exactly. Right. And I think that's one of the reasons why I wanted you on him before I read, I just read your little thing on the podcast thing. And I'm like, I want him on because he has lived it. You yeah. have lived it on both sides of the coin, the white and the black. And so yeah. you of all people are able to tell your story so that others can listen. Yeah. And that's, that's been the, the beautiful gift, you know, that, and actually part of the story didn't even make the book that I had found out later I'd written the book and then had gotten in touch with uh, relatives from my mother's side. Uh, I gotten in touch with an aunt, my mom's sister. And she tells me this story about my mother coming to her when she found out she was pregnant by this black coworker. And she goes to her sister, just panicked. And again, this is late 1960s white woman having an affair with a black guy. She's now pregnant. And quite honestly, in the late 60s, a white woman having an affair with a black guy, how her white husband responded to that, pretty much he would could have done anything he would have wanted to. And it would have been, not much would have been done against him. And so she was very, she risked a whole lot to go back to her husband and tell him that she was pregnant. Um, but the, the crazy thing is she went to her sister, panicked about being pregnant, um, asking for money for an abortion. And her mm. sister gave it to her. And so my mother's plan was to leave this small mobile home in Livonia, Michigan, a suburb of Detroit, and travel an hour away to Flint, Michigan, and have me aborted. Had the money in hand, and somewhere on that hour-long trip, 
she chose to go home, tell her husband, suffer the consequences, and hopefully be able to give birth to me. And his only uh, insistence was, you know, she put me up for adoption. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I feel called to do this work. I do a lot of work in schools and organizations and diversity and inclusion. And uh, yeah, it's personal to me. I think part of me has this desire to see if the two races that I'm made up of can get along, and how we kind of navigate that. And I think what you said earlier is that it just comes down to, we've got to take the time to listen to each other. And people of color don't always feel listened to. And when we come and we say things that are very painful to us, that may be about police brutality, how we're treated, and the response that we get is, no, you got that wrong. No, you're too sensitive. No, you don't know. I don't know what happened before the camera turned on. Um, mm -hmm. It's very hurtful when you're in pain as it is. Or even to the point they're saying, well, he was a criminal. What did he expect? That kind of. Right. Yeah. As if. Mentality. Yeah. Hopefully we haven't come to that point in our society where, yeah, it's okay to kill a guy because he's a criminal. I mean, mm -hmm. I don't care what he did. It's, it doesn't justify you shooting on the street. Quite no, it doesn't. It, not at all. So how can we get better then besides listening to other people's stories? How can we there, make it better? It's pretty simple, actually. So there's two things I tell schools and organizations that I work with is here's our here's our mission. We've got to create an environment where the kid with the Black Lives Matter T-shirt and the kid with the Make America Great Again hat can coexist. And how on earth do you do that? And what you do is you allow them to be all that they can be and want to be in their own three feet. Mm -hmm. So I can vote for who I want to. I can believe what I believe. I can marry and love who I want to. And my three feet never has to impact your three feet. There's this crazy thought that we as humans have is that if you're in my presence thinking differently than me, I've got to convince you to come to my side. Mm. One, huge waste of time. When you're talking about extremes like Black Lives Matter versus Make America Great Again, very rarely is one side going to bring the other side over to their mm -hmm. side. So why on earth are you wasting your time? That's one. And two, it's so unnecessary. <laughs> um, and, and, and two is let's not have these conversations with people we're not in relationship with. Mm. If you have a hard time with those Facebook conversations, the main reason is because you're not in relationship with those strangers, quite honestly. Mm -hmm. When you get in conversations and arguments with them, they can say and do anything they want to without a care for your feelings. If mm -hmm. you're in a relationship with someone, it's totally different. They're going to come at you in a different way. And these are explosive conversations to begin with. And if you don't have an investment with another person, really, these aren't conversations to have. And we can still all be who we want to be in our own three feet. And we just respect each other's three feet. Well, and I think that's a lot of narrows down to respect. A lot of people don't respect what everybody thinks. They don't want to respect the other person's opinions, no matter what. Yeah. Or there's this deep need to explain why they're wrong. Mm. <laughs> and so, yeah, if, if I express something, yeah, I'm not here to debate it. 
and, and you don't have to. That's a lot like Facebook. You know, sometimes people will go through, you know, post on Facebook. Just keep scrolling. You don't have to comment on everything. If you don't agree with it, just keep moving. And I think it's like that in life. You know, if you come across somebody who says something you don't believe, it's not your job to convince them that they're wrong and your position is right. Wow. And, you know, a lot of people, I think that has a lot to do. They think that is their job, that they're the the police of Facebook and that they're supposed to be everything that they say is supposed to be the right. word, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. And that it's just, it's not a good conversation to have with people you're not in a relationship with. And that's why those conversations, are, and I've gotten sucked into some stupid conversations mm -hmm. with people that I don't have anything in common with that I don't even know. And uh, yeah, it, they're just not worth your time and energy. And it, it just, and then you walk away from those, your heart's beating. It's just not healthy <laughs> on top of that. No, it's not. So um, go back to knowing you're adopted. You obviously have met your biological family, right? Some of them. Some of them. Okay. So how did that come about? Yeah. So when I was, and this is in the book. Yeah. So when I was in college, I decided that I wanted to search for my biological mother. So I started the search in college when I was 20, 21. Um, and at that time there was no internet. So it was just me writing to the, I was adopted out of Lutheran Social Services in Detroit. Um, and it was this horrible process of me writing back and forth to Lutheran Social Services, asking questions, or I could call on the phone. Um, but I was a broke college kid and didn't have the money to, make long distance calls. And so most of it was done through writing. I do remember calling Lutheran social services one day being on the phone in my dorm room and the woman who was handling my file, I could hear her on the phone flipping through paperwork. And it was so heartbreaking to realize she's flipping through my file and mm -hmm. she had everything that I want to know in her hands. And I don't have access to it. Mm. So I would ask questions and she would say things like, no, I can't answer that. No, I can't give you that information. Um, and so it became this just horribly emotional, frustrating process that I started when I was 20, 21. I would start for a while, then get so frustrated and get so emotionally exhausted, I would stop. And I did that, start, stop, start, stop for 20 years. Um, I remember the night I was going out to a football game with my young kids a high school football game. And a friend of mine had suggested that I use a search angel. Uh, and a search angel is someone who connects biological family with adoptees. Yeah. Um, but this time, but she had knowledge of the internet and how to use it to search. And she had all these search engines that she was using. Um, and so I gave her the, the what little information I had on the way out to this football game. And within 20 minutes, she found my biological mother. Wow. Um, unfortunately, that was that was in 2009. My mother died in 2003. Um, but that night, within a half hour, I had a picture of my mother's headstone, an obituary. And then the thing that I really wanted was the name of my brothers and sister. I knew my mother had children, other mm -hmm. children. And so then that began this process of trying to find the kids. Um, and I did, I found a sister and met her, met a brother. 
um, a niece, my aunt, an aunt and uncle, couple uncles actually. Um, and so, and here's actually a really cool story about that. So I got in touch with the family, got to know them. There were two brothers that I have that did not want to meet. They're all white. Mm -hmm. um, and so two brothers didn't want to meet, kind of expected that and understood that. Um, and so, yeah, uh, began a relationship with my sister and my brother and my brother's daughter. Uh, and it was just very hard to maintain. Um, no one ever, you know, those TV shows you see where the every, you know, they bring the adoptee together with the biological family and everyone's crying. It's this beautiful thing, but you never show the show after that. Like, so how do we handle these relationships? We're all adults now. I'm black, they're white. We've all grown up totally different. How do we manage that? And it was just so hard to manage that. Um, it was a dysfunctional family at best. Uh, my mother had had a child when she was in high school and mm. that the father of that child disappeared. So she married the next thing coming because that's what her mother told her to do. Mm. She married Louie, who was the husband when I came around. Um, and so Louie was just very abusive to her older son because he wasn't her his. Mm. Uh, and so I, yeah, I, it was obvious I would not have fared well in that family. And so I was somewhat thankful when I did meet my sister and got all the information. I was thankful that for me, and I don't say this about every adoption, but for me, the right decision was made. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, my older brother, uh, Michael, who's not my, <laughs> this gets so confusing, but so my biological mother, her husband, Louis, uh, so she has an older child when she gets married to Louis. Um, and yeah, Louis treated him horribly, abused him. As a result, Michael became an alcoholic and drug addict and eventually oh, wow. died from that. Yeah. And so I, yeah, man, just, yeah, if not for the grace of God, there go I. I think I would have probably gone down a similar road if I lived in that household. Um, so I did get to meet the family, um, but then got to a point too, where it just became so overwhelming. People were reaching out to me through Facebook um, and, and I finally just had to cut things off, but here's a cool story. So this was, I don't know, almost 10 years ago. I had met an uncle and had one conversation with this uncle. Um, and he was actually really happy to meet me, had, didn't know about me, uh, and had one conversation with him. Um, last Christmas, I go to the mailbox and I get a, a letter in the mail. Um, and I didn't recognize the address. And I open it up, my wife's standing right next to me and I open it up and it's a Christmas card, but there's a check in there. Um, and I open it up and there's a $5,000 check in there. Wow. So uncle that I've talked to once. And uh, so, I, so I get on Facebook and I'm probably closest to my niece, my brother's daughter. And so I, I message Stephanie on Facebook and I say, Tell me about Uncle Harold, because I didn't know who knew what. Uh -huh. uh, and I just said, tell me about Uncle Harold. So she tells me this great story about Uncle Harold used to live close to her, and he was her favorite uncle. And he would always, every time she would go over to his house, he would say, uh, have you seen that orange cat? Go find the orange cat. And she said, I didn't know until years later. He didn't even have an orange cat. 
<laughs> and I thought that was just a kind of a cute uncle story, you know, that he would just chase her after this cat or send her off after this cat that didn't exist. Um, and so she had fond memories of him, which was really cool. And I said, well, did you guys get a Christmas card? And I was trying to bring this up. And again, we're all family, but it's kind of, we're just not all connected. And I didn't know what information I should be sharing. So I, I finally just told her, I said, tell your brother and my, and my sister, you know, if they get a card to give me a call. And they never did, but Stephanie did give me uh, Harold's number. So I called him and I just said, man, you know, I, I just want to thank you a lot for that. And it's kind of interesting. So, you know, he's a guy, I'm a guy. And he didn't want to, I could tell he did not want to mm -hmm. go there emotionally, but I wanted him to hear what I was saying because that was important to me. Um, and so I just said, man, that means a lot to me. And I said, more, more than the check, the gift that was in there, Mm -hmm. The fact that you consider me family just meant so much to me. So thank you. And I think he heard that. Um, yeah. yeah, and I thought that was just really cool. And he had said, you know, let me give you some context. I was going through, my wife died a year ago. I was going through my affairs. And I thought, man, I want to give this money that I have to my children and nieces and nephews. Mm. And there's a lot of grandkids out there too. And so that was really cool that, you know, I made the cut so that he said, yeah, you're, you're family, you know, and it, to an adoptee, man, that just means the world. Yeah. I can imagine. Now, have you found your biological dad or no? Yeah. Yes. And no, which is crazy too. So, and this is kind of a statement about the racial affairs in the United States. I went on ancestry.com, did the, DNA tests, and I also went on 23andMe mm -hmm. and did the tests for both of those. It's interesting. So I have a black side and a white side. The information that I get from my mother's side is never ending. I will get emails at least on a weekly basis telling me they found a white relative of mine. Wow. I do not get that with my father's black side. And I think that has a lot to do with how we kept records for, for white people versus black people. Mm -hmm. And so I have, I can, I could trace me through my father. And then I think I found his parents and that's it. And he had kids. I couldn't find anything on his other children. Um, and then one day I got an email from a guy who said, Hey, I think I'm your brother through uh, 23 and me. I'd done the DNA test. He had done it. Um, and so I messaged him, but all his information wasn't coming back. He was telling me about people that I didn't, that weren't on my family tree. Mm. And I was so confused. And he said, and my father's name is Lawrence Nelson. And so he was like, yeah, my father's name is Lawrence Nelson. And so we were close, but it wasn't matching up. And it was just very confusing. And then we finally figured out that he's actually my nephew. So my mm. father had a son and named him Lawrence Nelson. And then a lot like my father, Lawrence Nelson Jr. had an affair with a woman and disappeared, quite honestly. And so my nephew was trying to find his father. And through my nephew, I found a brother. And uh, I called the brother, it was two years ago, right around Christmas, and left him a message and just said, hey, 
you know, I think you might be my brother, my dad, my biological father worked in a Chevy stamping plant, Livonia, Michigan, back in the late 60s. He went by the name Pee Wee. And I, I knew I had to give him as much information as I could mm-hmm. in the short amount of time to let him know I wasn't crazy, just some crazy person calling. And so he'd called me right back and I was, I was just too panicked to answer the phone. And so he left a message and I listened to the message and my brother is 20 years older than me. So he's in his 70s and just cool old black dude. He just says, who's very protective of his information by the way. And he just says, yeah, Hoffman got your message. Yeah, my father, yep, Pee Wee, yep. All that information's right. Yep, sounds like you're my brother. Give me a call. (laughs) (laughs) And so I call him and I'm trying to get information out of him. I knew we had a sister and I'm trying to ask him about that, but I can tell he's very guarded. And so he doesn't give me much. And I say, so do you have a, do you have any siblings? And he goes, yeah, I have a sister. She's three, four years older than me, uh, but she gets along better than I do. She's still alive, still lives in the Detroit area. And I'm like, oh, cool, man. I'd really like to meet her. Can you pass along my information? And he's like, yeah, 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 I will. I don't know if he did, but I never heard from her. And I, mm. I texted him a couple of times. He said, hey, did you get a chance to do that? Never heard back. But um, So I got to meet them. They didn't know anything about me. I didn't think they would. I would question if my father even knew. Mm. I met my mother's back, best friend, uh, the black woman. So my mother was good friends with the black woman that she worked with. And the black woman uh, actually shared with me that they would come together at work and be seen together just socializing her and my mother and they would both take flack for from it from their perspective races so the black people would come up to my to my mother's best friend lulu and warn her about hanging out with white people and then the white people would do the same thing to my mother and warn her about being with the black people but they were very good friends um and to the point where when i how i got in touch with my sister was I had to go through my mother's husband and he gave me all the information to find the family. And he gave me the information about my mother's best friend, Lulu. Um, And so I found a number for her, called her and she had moved from Detroit to Atlanta. And I, the number I'd gotten was her sister and I called her sister. And all I said was, my name is Kevin. I'm Helen's son. And I was looking for Lulu. That's all I had to say. And that sister said, hold on, let me get you Lulu's number. Mm-hmm. So their relationship was close enough that Lulu had told me, I told everyone in my family, if anyone from Helen's family ever calls me to give them my number. So I thought that was a cool legacy my mother left that she was very, you know, it was such a such a contentious time. And she was very close to this black woman, had, you know, had a relationship with the black man. Um, so yeah, I met my father's family and then found out that my mother, my biological mother and biological father died within two weeks of each other. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That's something else right there. Yeah. Isn't it? Now growing up in the sixties, I'm a 60 child too. I was two years younger than you though. I'm two years younger than you, but 
growing up and seeing, you know, when in your kids, you don't really see a lot of it, but in the high schools, you, you weren't interracial couples were not something that were, they were taboo almost. Nobody did it. Nobody dated outside their race. And now people are dating outside their race. Do you see a change that people it's becoming more accepted or do you see now it with the turmoil going on now in the media, do you think it's we're, we're stepping back in the sixties again? With it's interesting. So yeah, like I was trying to think there was a couple interracial couple in the sixties that it was actually against the law for them to date. Mm -hmm. Um, and I was trying to think when that was, but that was in the sixties. Uh, so it's no longer outlawed. I think it's more acceptable, but you, but I'm still shocked that when you, when you see commercials, like there was a commercial a few years ago, it was a Cheerios commercial that showed mm -hmm. a racial couple and the hate that they got from that was just, it was just shot at that time, especially cause this was several years ago. This was over four years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that was shocking. But what we've seen in the last four years, man, we've taken a huge step backwards. I think a lot of what, you know, I was faced with growing up is just as bad, if not worse now. So how do we get mm -hmm. over that hump? How do, what do we do as normal human beings to help get over that hump, to help get us back to where we were when um, I when Obama was president now, you know, with the president we have now, because I think a lot of that, he stirs a lot of the racial tensions. He does. Yeah. Yeah. And really allows, allows voices to people who a lot of people weren't even listening to. Mm -hmm. um, and so he allows that platform and they become very emboldened to do and say things. And so you've seen a huge spike in hate crimes and incidents I think that has to do with, yeah, when the leader is saying some horrible things that trickles down. Um, so, yeah, how do we get past that? I think how we get past that is just I that's the thing that's so frustrating is I think it just it just takes compassionate, logical people. Mm -hmm. So, you know, even over this this whole issue of uh, police brutality, if you just look at it, it's it's rarest form, rawest form, which is. No, people shouldn't be killed at the hands of police. Nobody should. Police should be trained that that is the last resort. It shouldn't be shoot and then figure it out. And they and so I think a, a huge part of that has to do with training, but it also has to do with bias, which we have to address. Um, like I said, I had a lot of time to re look over how race impacts us in this country. And one of the biggest things is that we all have these biases and if we've just got to own up that, yeah, you know, it's actually, there's, it's logical as to why we have bias. There's something in us, in our heads and our minds that causes us to have bias because it protects you. And so your mind is firing off so quickly at thoughts that sometimes when there's danger, it will tell you, stay away from this. Mm -hmm. And so you have these biases. Well, because of the way our, countries set up we've actually been fed these biases and so i think a lot of times because you're told over and over again subconsciously that you know that black guy is dangerous mm -hmm. a lot of people begin to believe that and so if you're a police officer and you come up against a black guy and you've always been told he's dangerous and then throughout training 
you've always been told you're one interaction away from being killed. So always be on the edge, be always ready for that violent confrontation. And so that puts them on edge even more. And so it's not a wonder that they're responding to things in that manner. We've got to do a better job of training them to just deescalate things. Mm -hmm. I used to tell my kids, you know, anytime, you know, you have a interaction with a child your age and their reaction is so way above what it should be. There's something going on with that child. Mm-hmm. And, I think, and I think a lot of these incidents have to do with people with mental illnesses. And I think we have to just look at them compassionately and just figure out, okay, now we're on scene. What's the most compassionate way to resolve this? And it doesn't mean to shoot them. There's alternative ways to deescalate things. Yeah, it's true. So you, you are a dad. So how do you want to see the America that your children grow up in? Obviously, kind of not like you grew up or, or would you say yes? Yeah, part of me is like, man, there were, I did, we didn't have this kind of, this kind of just button heads like we do now. Mm-hmm. And it's just frustrating for me because I was born into this. You know, I was born into the riots of 67. And it's just frustrating that 53 years later, it almost seems like we're right back where we were. Um, so I think you move, the only way you move forward is with hope. And this is what I say about everything that's gone on now. Um, Back in March, when the George Floyd incident happened, I think that was the perfect storm in a sense. That it was, we were all quarantined inside with not much to do. So a lot more people were on their phones and watching videos. And when that video went viral with the cop kneeling on George Floyd's neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds, that showed people something. Mm-hmm. And I showed a lot of people that this was a country we didn't want to be in, that we wanted it to be better. Um, and I thought it was interesting when I was studying civil rights, what really kicked off the movement and push behind getting so much change in the late 60s was TV. Every night people would turn on their TVs and they would see the horrible treatment of people of color by police, you know, being squirted with fire hoses or being torn apart by German shepherds. And it was then when people had to see that in their living room that they under, they thought, this is the country that we can't, we can't keep going on like this. We're just gonna kill each other. And so I think that was the major push behind the civil rights movement. And it was a push not only by people of color, but it was also a push by white people. And they stood up and said, these people have every right that we do and we have to stand with them and help them. And that's why we had so much change with the civil rights. I think you're seeing that now with the uh, with with technology. You're seeing that with these cell phones. Now you get to see the treatment that our community has been complaining about for decades. And you almost it, it and it seems like it's happening almost every day, which in a lot of senses it is. Um and so I think I just appeal to everybody's compassion and say, what if it's just so heartbreaking as a person of color and a parent of boys of color, man, you just don't want to be, you don't want your child to be the next hashtag. You don't want your child to be the next Trayvon Martin or George Floyd. 
And so I'm, we're just, it's just an appeal. It's a compassionate appeal that, that we just make these changes so we don't have to live in fear that, you know, our child may not come home. And that's such a real fear in our community. And one of the things I learned from, there were two incidents that happened back to back a couple of years ago. It was Philando Castillo, who was the teacher that was shot by a police officer and his girlfriend had it on Facebook Live. And then the very next day, Alton Sterling was killed for selling CDs outside of a convenience store. And I remember that second day driving into work, I work uh, as an insurance adjuster in the office that I work in has a hundred employees. I'm the only black one in the office. And I remember driving to work and a Marvin Gaye song, what's going on came on. And in that song, he asks about mother, 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 why are you crying? Um, and it's, you know, cause their sons were dying. That was written in the sixties. And I, and I just wept on the way to work thinking, man, we're still dealing with this exact same thing. And I remember thinking, what people don't get is that we take this very personal as a community of color, almost as if it's our own son or cousin mm -hmm. that was killed. So I remember driving into work and getting myself together as I pulled into the parking lot and thinking, please don't let anyone say anything wrong to me today because I don't want to have to respond to them. And the day ended and nobody said anything. And I remember thinking, man, which is worse? The fact that, you know, someone would say something horrible and out of line or that no one even cared enough to say anything. Uh, man, that, that, was, that really shook me. And, and I thought, man, we've got to do better. But since then, it just seems like it's getting worse. Sure. But I encourage that. With George Floyd, something there was this shift, and I think it was just like I said, this perfect storm, where so many people saw what a horrible incident that was, where police chiefs were denouncing it, which I've never seen. Mm -hmm. Mayors were denouncing it. Uh, short of the president, there were a lot of people denouncing what had happened, and I had never seen that before. Usually, what happens is the police fall in line. They close ranks and no one speaks out about what their fellow officer did. Mm -hmm. And so people in power were saying that was horrible and it shouldn't have happened. And I thought, okay, now we're at a place in this conversation we've never been. And so I'm hopeful that through this, this horrible pain of this year, that we'll get to a place where real change can happen. And I think we're right at that point. Yeah. When George Floyd was happening, it was hard for me to, uh, let me just say, my dad was a cop in the 70s, 80s. And so it's hard for me to just because he was more the community policing. So he would go yeah. around and he would be problem, with yeah. everybody and just. And so it's hard for me to coincide to see the cop of today as the cop he was and say that not exists. But when George Floyd happened, my middle daughter in eighth grade had a boy, a black boyfriend who has since hung around and he calls me Madre. He is not, they're not married. They're not even in a relationship anymore, but he's my son, no yeah. matter what, you know? And so when that happened with George Floyd, all I saw was his face and yeah. I just wept. And yeah. when you put the face and now I know a part of what black mothers and fathers are going yeah. through because I mean, I just broke my heart. And just imagine every day wondering if your child's going to come home. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 
And that's when I work in schools, the most powerful meetings we have are when we bring in, we'll have just these sessions where people can share, you know, so what's it like in this predominantly white environment with your child of color? And the most powerful sessions we have are when black parents get up and share that experience of what that's like, that, that fear of sending your child out into this world knowing that something that horrible could happen to them. And that's a very realistic fear of a lot of people. And that really, other parents see that and you can almost just feel it in the meetings where the tension just really comes down when they can just see it, when they can just see somebody, like you said, when they can put a, put a face to that situation. And it's, and again, that's the part of talking about where then the compassion comes in and you go, okay, man, yeah, I know all cops aren't bad, but this just, this ain't, this isn't the way to do it. Right. Be bad. At all. And you tapped on it. That's one of the things that we're missing is community policing. Back in the day when your dad did it, he knew the crazy guy. He knew the guy that had mental ability, disability. Mm -hmm. And so when they saw him out in the street, they would do things like just take him home, make sure he's safe and take him home. Mm -hmm. That's what you need to get back to. Um, one of my favorite videos, and I tell, man, I, I wish I could counsel police departments because I tell them, this is the stuff you got to do. There's mm -hmm. a great video out there of uh, the cop. This cop is called into a, these black kids are playing basketball in the street in front of this older white woman's house. She calls the police. And instead of the cops coming out and escalating it, the cop takes off his belt and he plays basketball with the kids. Mm -hmm. And then he comes back and he brings Shaquille O'Neal. And it becomes this amazing viral event. And I'm, I, man, I would just impress upon police departments. That's the community policing you need. They need to know who they're policing because then they do it in a compassionate way. Mm -hmm. And it's harder to kill someone you don't know, quite honestly. That's true. It's easier to kill someone you don't know, but it's harder if you know that person in their back. So that's one thing I think we got to do a better job is just get back to that community policing. That's better for everybody. I mean, because honestly, I'm from the South. So my dad was a cop in the South. So if he's able to community police in the South, which is exactly. a predominantly racist, I yeah. hate to say it, a racist community. Yeah. And he was originally from up north, so that made a difference. And I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that he was also military. He was an ex-Marine. You know, he was retired. He was able to live and be exposed to all the different cultures. I think it's the what the unknown of the cultures. Like we, oh, there all these stereotypes about what each culture does and what what they eat and like and all, all these strange foods and like you were talking about in your book about how you sat down the first time with some of your black friends and they had all this <laughs> and you're like you ate nay 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 because it was yeah. so good you weren't used to that type of food yeah. but we need to get used to being immersed in each other's cultures to learn each other things yeah that's the interesting thing as a person of color just through exposure, you get exposed to really white culture. And so like, it's as simple as I remember growing up. Oh, I went back for my, I think it was 30th uh, reunion for high school. And my wife went with me and my wife was shocked at the music that we played at our, our reunion. And it wasn't just like soul music. It was all kinds of music 
because we were all exposed to white music and you know Billy Idol was big back then and Rihanna mm -hmm. and but all these white artists we knew of because we had exposure to them because that was part of the predominant culture mm -hmm. and so part of me is like man what a shame that that doesn't happen the other way because you miss out on so many wonderful amazing like musical artists mm -hmm. um and i just thought wow you're i think in a sense white culture is cheated out of that because you don't get into our culture enough to really get it take advantage of that stuff um yeah it's funny like in the black community you will often Halle berry was a great example of she had been in the black community was an actress for several years and in the black community, we knew her well. Mm -hmm. And then she crossed over, actually lost a lot of weight, crossed over, and then became this huge success, you know, in mainstream. And I and you see, oftentimes we'll see that with who we call black actors and actresses. We saw that with Tyler Perry, who had mm -hmm. been in the black community for years, right. doing what they call the Chitlin circuit, circuit with all his plays. Um, and then he just kind of crossed over and blew up. Um, so you see that a lot, but what you don't know is the years and years we've known these people. And I'm just like, wow, it's a shame that everybody doesn't get to take advantage of that great history and, and richness of culture. Yeah. Cause I remember reading you brought Tyler Perry up. I remember reading Tyler Perry's um, autobiography, talking about how he lived out of his car and basically what well, he was abused as a child. And I'm like, wow, for him to come and, and just any any person to come from that circumstance and then have the actual, you know, his color actually, you know, is a strike against him as well for him to rise above all that. That's a great story that a lot of people need to know about, not just the Medea of yeah, you know, the right. black woman. You know, they need to know everything about that. Yeah, definitely. So what is one thing that you could tell people? If you were you were sitting down with them and you're having a cup of coffee and you want them to know about the black culture or about you know how to respond to black people in America, not saying that it's negative stereotype, but what's the you know what I'm trying to say? I can't get quite get the words out, but what would you like to sit down and have a conversation with them about? If it's just anybody, listen. just listen, and that and that's hard for some of us. So here's a great story. When I was growing up, my best friend in that white neighborhood was still is to this day, I've known him for over 40 years. His name is Mike, um, tall, skinny white kid. And I remember we were probably seven or eight and I knew that physically we were different. My skin color was darker than his. And so I remember having this conscious thought that this is my best friend. I should be able to talk about this with him. So how do I do that? But I also knew that it's such a volatile conversation that it could end our relationship as well. Mm. And so after we'd known each other, I met him when I was eight, I, I probably at about 10, I thought, you know, I want to be able to bring all of myself to this relationship with my best friend, which means we've got to talk about the elephant in the room that our skin colors don't match and how that's impacting me. So I remember, being real nervous about this conversation and finally just saying, um, while we were playing one day, just saying, man, Mike, you know, Mrs. Matt's the mean lady down the street. And I think she treats me horribly and it's just cause I'm black. And when we're in, when you're in pain and you're sharing a painful story with someone, all you want someone to do is to hear you. Mm. 
unfortunately, Mike just said, yeah, man, you might be right. You want to go shoot some hoops? And that's all I needed. I didn't need a big conversation. I just needed a friend that would be willing to hear my experience. And so that's why I encourage people today. And it's harder, honestly, for white people because you've always been given your experience. Mm -hmm. Because that's the story we go with, with movies and TV. So I just encourage people, just listen to other people and hear how they're experiencing the world. There's a t-shirt that I created that says, if we see the world from different angles, whose view is correct? Mm. And then on the back, it says, you know, diversity eliminates our blind spots. So what I can see from my view, I can help protect you from things you can't see from your view. So if we can just come together and talk about these things, we just all get a broader view of how things are. And we just have to understand that your experience might not be my experience and that's okay, but it doesn't mean your experience didn't happen. Wow. That's really profound. So um, wrapping it up, tell everybody where they can find you. Yeah. So the book growing up black and white, it's scrolling across the bottom. Thank you. That is fabulous. How you do that. Um, <laughs> so yeah, growing up black and white, it's on Amazon. I've done, it's available on Kindle, audible. Uh, it's, it's available on, Kindle unlimited. If you are on Kindle unlimited member, yeah, because yeah. Yeah, right. yeah. It's on there. Um, what else? And yeah, my website is just the name of the book, growinguplackandwhite.com. You can see, you know, examples of me speaking. Like I said, I work with schools and organizations, universities. Um, you can see stuff about me there. Yeah, so that's where you can find me. All right, Kevin, I want to thank you so much for coming on and sharing your experiences. I can't wait to finish the book. I just, I'm kind of heartbroken that I didn't get finished in time. <laughs> But I mean, I'm like, I have been reading it. And like I told you, I took notes on it as I was reading it because I just, it, there's so many great tidbits in there. Yeah. And I'll let you know, since you haven't finished, the way the story of me and my grandmother resolves is actually really cool and really beautiful. It says a lot about, yeah, how people can change. So I'll let you read it. But yeah, it's one of the, my favorite parts of the book, actually. Oh, now I can't wait to read it. <laughs> <laughs> and I would love to have you come back on again later yeah. on in a couple months to talk about the state of the race relations in America after the election, because you never know. Things may change after the election. I, I think in six months, you'll see a big change, quite honest. Yeah. Hopefully. Fingers yeah. crossed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So, guys, we will see you on the next chat from the Block Cabin. Have a great night, everybody. Bye. Y'all, I don't know about you, but I've really learned a lot from Kevin. And I highly suggest you buying his book, Growing Up Black and White. As you remember, in the last podcast episode, I interviewed Ajanique. And she talked about having a book club that basically focuses on authors of color. Why well, I actually recommended him to Ajanate for her book club. So let's see if that happens. Um, I really enjoyed hearing Kevin's stories about how he's overcome so many things in his life. Um, how he learned 
um, How to Be by emulating the people that he rolls around. And I also applaud his parents for actually stepping outside of their comfort zone and doing things that they don't normally do. Um, in 1967, you you don't see biracial adoptions. You don't see um, a white family adopting a black child. That was just not done, but his parents did it. And he has such a wonderful story to tell. It's really a story of redemption, love, um, survival, and surviving not only for him, but also for his family because his family chose to live in, in some of the more racially diverse um, neighborhoods in Detroit where they were the minority and not the majority just so that he could have people of color around so he could learn y'all that is just an amazing set of parents and honestly there are so many great tis- tidbits that he had in the book but I love the one thing that really stood out for me was what he said about Christian parents when someone was in need, you help them. When someone needs a helping hand, you offer yours. That is what we all should be doing for everybody in our life. People that we run across, what regardless of the race, regardless, regardless of their um, ethnicity, regardless of the religion, regardless of who they love, help each other. Listen, sit down and have intelligent conversations. And most importantly, be open. Be open to learn from people that are different from you. Because honestly, that's when we start learning. That's where we start moving past where we are right now in our country. That also means going to vote. That was probably the hardest things that I have to get through to my kids is to vote, even though they don't think their votes matter. Still, you have a say. You throw away your vote when you don't vote. So remember, I have turned these chats from the blog cabinet onto Facebook Lives and YouTube videos. So if you want to see them first on Facebook or YouTube, just um, look for chats from the blog cabin on YouTube and go to Adventures of Frugal Mom's Facebook page for the live interviews. Also remember to subscribe and leave a review because that helps me these episodes get seen by more and more people. And remember, keep chatting.